0: Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, team. Uh, My name is Jesse. If you've not met me before, I am the youth pastor here at Central Heights. I'm repping our youth group here uh, today. I'm part of a a big machine that is Central Heights Youth with an amazing amount of leaders and uh, just quality people. Uh, and I get the privilege of jumping in to part four of this Kingdom series. We're calling it Kingdom the Story because we're tracing the storyline of the entire Bible under the theme of God's kingdom. And we're boring a lot of the uh, language and the, the chapter headings from a book called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. And so we've gone through the first three parts. Part one was about the pattern of the kingdom, and we were defining kingdom as the rule of God and the realm of his blessing. And all throughout, we're going to see it requires three things. It requires God's people in God's place under God's rule. And in this first part in Genesis chapter one and two, we saw that as the king creator, God is good. And we as his creation have incredible value and purpose. Part two, we went from Genesis 3 to around Genesis 11 and we saw things went bad really quickly because mankind rejects God's rule and that creates a big problem, meaning there's going to need to be a very big solution. And then last week, finally, we started to see the beginning of this solution, some good news finally. The story starts to trend towards hope because it was spiraling down uh, up until the 11th chapter of Genesis and in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham and the promise informs the rest of the story of the Bible. Everything that moves on from this point comes from last week's message. So if you missed it, you might want to jump back there because everything is an outworking of what God speaks to Abraham here. God is committed to rescue and bless humanity. Let me just read for us uh, this chunk of verses before we get to today's uh, portion. It says in Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And catch this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God sees a need And the promise of rescue has begun. And this is where we're going to pick up the story today. Would you pray with me as we do that? God, we give you this time and we ask that you would speak to us, that for each of us in this room coming from different backgrounds, different experiences in our week, different personalities, that something with this timeless story that has timeless principles of a timeless God who is amazingly good would shape and transform us today to follow you For your glory and the flourishing of our city and our world in 2018. In Jesus' name, amen. So I I was in the parking lot in between services and one of our seniors says to me, hey, you know, I I read in in the bulletin before you started that we were covering Genesis 12 to 2 Kings 25. And he's like, "I, I thought that must be a mistake. And I was like, you're right, it might have been a mistake. Like, we've covered, okay, this is part four out of eight parts in this series. We've covered 12 chapters in one book thus far. And today we're going to cover 326 chapters of the Bible. So Tim uh, gave this to me and I was like, well, thanks. Uh, It seems like my work is cut out for me. So what I decided to do with all of us uh, today was I was like, you know what, I'm going to take the approach to this part of the story, the, the, the partial kingdom part of the story that my brother and I took when we were uh, teenagers when we would watch the Lord of the Rings movies. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of talking in those movies. There's also a lot of walking in those movies. Like, the step count is high. And so I'm like, okay, when you're a teenager, you're like, ah, plot development, whatever, character development, whatever, extended edition, okay, well, there might be some more action. And that's what we're really after. So thankfully, back then, there was technology that was invented and we could uh, scene select. We could skip through to, you know, the part where there, the sword was out of the sheath and there's bows and arrows and, you know, rocks are being thrown and, and just crazy stuff is happening. We wanted to get to the action. And that's the approach we're going to take this morning because otherwise uh, we're going to take way too long. You guys are going to be here until the next Daylight Savings and we're not going to have gotten anywhere. So uh, how we're going to do this is we are going to scene select. Which means I am purposefully going to miss a lot and that's going to be hard for me. But we're going to go through this in four scenes. Scene number one, what we're going to do is we're going to see how God raises up and rescues his people. That's going to be Genesis 12 to Exodus 18. Scene number two we're going to skip towards is how to live in relationship with a holy God. That'll be Exodus 19 to Leviticus 27. Scene three, God's people are going to enter into what God promised. We just read about part of what God promised. It was land. So that's going to be the book of Numbers to the end of Joshua. And then finally, scene four, we're going to see God's people struggle to get this whole thing fully right. And it's going to be Judges to the end of Second Kings. So, you ready? Some of you are buckling up. You're good to go? Okay, here we go. We're going to start... and, and start with this call on Abraham's life. So the, there's a promise that's made and it goes through and, and God raises up Abraham's family. Miraculous circumstances. Abraham has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel through some wrestling he does with people and with God and the, and the shrewdness with which he handles life. Israel then has 12 sons who then become the 12 tribal heads of this nation of Israel. Israel. And these people end up in the land of Egypt, which is a problem because Egypt is not the land we just read about. The land we read about in the promise was Canaan. So they end up in Egypt, and that's not the destination God had intended. And they become enslaved to the king there. And in Exodus chapter 6, uh, we read uh, what is happening. uh, Starting in verse 2, God spoke to Moses who uh, is an Israelite himself who is part of the the people there but decides to flee the country after committing murder, which is a smart idea, I suppose. So this is the guy God is going to choose to do some stuff with. God speaks to Moses and says to him, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. I've remembered my promise. Say therefore, the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If you've been around church long enough or kind of familiar with some terrible Hollywood movies about this, what you'll know is that these great acts of judgment happen, and they happen in a very hardcore and violent way. Basically, the whole nation just gets obliterated through ten plagues where God systematically goes through and says, okay, Israelites, I'm bringing you out, but I want you to know as you're leaving, all the gods who've got claim in Egypt over these different parts of the world, different parts of their rulership, they're all false. They're all fake. I'm going to just throw plagues in there and show you that I've got the power, I've got the control, and I'm going to force these Egyptians to get you out. They're going wa- to beg you to go. You're going to plunder them on your way out. And so that's what happens. We really need to understand this part of the story because it's one of the clearest pictures in a partial way of how God later will come and do a perfect rescue, a perfect deliverance, a second exodus, if you will, through Jesus. One of the ways we see that is that the 10th plague. God says, I'm going to uh, kill the firstborn in, in all of Egypt. These people are wicked. These people are evil. And this is going to motivate them to let you go out of slavery, so that my rescue plan for the whole world can continue. I can keep my promise. That sounds really harsh, but then what happens is he says, no, this is going to happen except for, I'm going to institute something called Passover, Each man, you can read about this in Exodus 12, each man was to take a lamb for his household. They were to find not just any lamb, a perfect lamb, one that didn't have a blemish, that didn't have any broken bones, and they were going to kill it. They were going to smear their doorposts, really weird and kind of gross for Sunday morning before you've eaten or whatever, but they are going to smear it on their door frames and and God says to them at the end of Exodus 12, when I see the blood, you won't experience judgment. This starts to make sense for us, and in two weeks we might hear, you know, in John, when John says about Jesus, look, there's the Lamb of God. When Paul says, our Passover Lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed, what we should understand is that all the context for that is way back here. Pictures beforehand in a partial way of what is yet to come and yet to happen. And this is just one of the things that happens. Eventually, yeah, the, the king of Egypt says, get out of here. We're done with this. all this plagues. We've got nothing left, pretty much. The, the, the Israelites leave en masse, plundering the Egyptians. They end up in a body of water. You've seen the movies. You've seen the scene where just the water just, just separates. People go through. Uh, Egyptians want to chase them because they regret what they've done. They don't make it. And uh, eventually, uh, the people end up where they should be. But before they get there, we enter scene two. In Exodus 19, and God shows up and tells them, hey, there's going to be some ways you're going to need to relate to me because I want to live with you. And if we understand God's perfect character and his holiness and his gloriousness, we understand, okay, there's got to be some sort of way this is going to have to work because these people are nowhere near perfect, nowhere near holy, nowhere near glorious. Uh, I mean, they they start actually taking the plunder right away that they got from Egypt and making idols to worship. Like, what is going on? Who are are these? What's wrong with these people? So God says, there's going to be some ways we're going to have to relate. He gives the Ten Commandments, the law, the religious system to Moses and says, this is how it's all going to have to work if you guys want to live with me and be my people. And in Leviticus chapter 11, we read, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy for I'm holy. Remember, this whole idea is to fulfill the promise to Abraham to rescue and bless the world. And the people can't do that if they're inaccurately representing God. I think we we sometimes get bogged down in this scene of the story. This is, you know, this is the scene where those of you who started a new reading plan at New Year's stopped your reading plan, right? Like this is this is where it's like, "Ah, oh, Lord, I'm really struggling with my devotional time now because it's all rules and laws because this is a big deal." But we we should understand this because all of us understand we when any type of human relationship, there's, there's certain ways of appropriate behavior. There's certain ways we have to interact to make sure the thing happens in a healthy way. Uh, for example, uh, I was in the parkade in my building in downtown Abbotsford this week. Uh, there's, a, there's a gate that comes up to, to drive out of. And I, I was walking with my almost two-year-old. And we were going to go out into the back alley, walk downtown. It was a nice day, kind of like today. And I, I pushed the, the clicker to open up the garage door. And I'm kind of interacting with him because he's wild and crazy and doing his thing. So I want to make sure he's not you know, bumping into cars and stuff. And so as I look back at him... Uh, I start to glance over, and the door's coming up. And my plan was to go out that door just like I would any other day. But today was different because before I could come out the door, a SWAT team of police was coming through the gate into the parkade, and like they're coming in with you know shotguns and rifles and pepper spray and tasers and the whole the whole works, right? And the, the attitude. And I'm just like, whoa, what's what's happening here? Like, and I, I thought, you know, it, there's could have been a lot of inappropriate responses for me to relate to them in that moment. Like, like let's say I was uh, walking along with my son, I see them, and as soon as I like, see them, I freeze, and I just like, kind of bolt, right? They'd be like, there's the guy! Get him! You know, they're you know, like, they're going to take me down! That would not have been an appropriate response. That's not how you interact with, with different people in that situation. Or even worse, what if I had ran towards them and started yelling, like, this is my building, this is my land, like, get out of here. Like, that also would have been really bad. I would have been prone so fast, and, like, it would have been bad. We understand, obviously, relationships need to work because of certain things that get put in place. And that's what this is all about. God wants to live with them. He wants to dwell with them. And that is supposed to be a blessing. Vaughn Roberts writes... And in God's big picture, we tend to have a negative attitude to authority and assume it must always be oppressive. And that might not be our fault because, I mean, authority in the world right now seems, you know, subpar at best. But, but there's nothing negative about being under God's authority. In the Bible, to be under God's rule is to enjoy God's blessing. We need that context in mind. We need to remember the promise of the kingdom. And all this needs to, is going to work if they follow what's described here. We enter scene three then. And uh, the people enter this land. And this land, by the way, wasn't just like free open real estate. Like the, it was a competitive market, all right? It's like Abbotsford where they're, they're, you know, they're, they're like, there's going to be clashing happening here. Except way worse because there's going to be swords and blood involved rather than just high prices. So what happens is they go into this land and God says these people are evil and wicked. And in order for my overall big picture plan to rescue and bless the world, you're going to need to drive them out so that you stay my people, so that you stay holy. And so there's battles that happen and and stuff ensues. And uh, one of the things I love about this part of the story is uh, we're starting here in Joshua now. Uh, If you're kind of checking back in, like where are we? We're in we're in the starting point of Joshua. And a couple times right on before they enter the land, they're told, be strong, be courageous. Be strong, be very courageous. Because one of the things that this God is about is not just about making promises. What accompanies God's promise is always God's presence. And so he's like, I'm going to be with you. You don't need to be afraid. You can be courageous. And maybe that's just enough for us to hear today. There's promises all throughout the Bible that maybe we're aware of or we've been told. And we wonder, okay, is, is God present?" With this, he's told me something about praying for anxiety. He's told me something about you know relating to people. How am I supposed to do this? Well, his presence is accompanying his promises, and that's what we see in the book of Joshua. They they eventually get into the land. They they dispossess these other nations, and they start to divvy up the land according to their tribes. And the promise to get into Canaan is fulfilled. So now we've got God's people rescued out of Egypt. We've got God's place that was promised. But scene four, people really start to struggle to get it fully right. We get to the book of Judges, and what ends up happening is we've got these people starting to rule the, the nation. The, kind of these tribal warlords who, we, for some reason, we put them in our Sunday school stories, although most of them are terrible people, um, but they, they do follow God to varying degrees, and God uses them to, to help the people along, to free them from uh, other uh, oppressive nations and such. But it's not quite exactly the type of rule, the type of blessing, the type of kingdom yet that God had intended. Eventually, that we get through these judges. Uh, that's the, the names of these people who kind of step up and lead, and God raises them up. And we get these kings, uh, and the reason for that is in the start of 1 Samuel, the, the, the people of Israel look around and they realize something's not quite right. And they see, okay, the other nations, they've all got kings. Maybe that's what we need. So they come to the, one of the judges, Samuel, and they say, hey, give us a king. That seems to be working for all these other people. We're God's people. We're, we must be missing out on something. We don't have this yet. You know, give us this type of rulership. Which, by the way, is a, not a good idea when you deviate from God's word and look around at the culture and go, oh, that must be the answer to our, our struggle. Is let's just put the Bible aside for a second, put God's word aside for a second, and we're going to go with this. Let's see what all the other nations are doing, and that must, must be what it's about. God grants them their wish, but he, he tells Samuel, look, they, they didn't reject your rule, it's, it's, they're rejecting me, but I'm going to meet them where they're at, and I'm going to establish this anyways. They get a false start, and a guy named Saul, uh, who doesn't, you know, fare too well. But then they get King David, and a lot of us have heard of King David, a man after God's own heart. A lot of great and amazing stuff it happens through his rule. Uh, it's it's not an easy journey, but it happens. And then we get to Second Samuel. God reinforces this rescue plan, this promise. And the the, the plan of God, even though there's been hundreds of years and generations that have passed by now, starts to get more and more specific. We've gone from Abraham down to to Moses, and now we get to David. And we're starting to see closer and closer what God's after here. So in in 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to start reading in verse 12, he says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Your throne shall be established forever. David has a son named Solomon, and this is the closest thing we get to a kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We've got God's people. We've got God's place. We've got Jerusalem. We've got this temple that gets built by Solomon. And we've got these people who now have the law. So we've got God's rule as well. But something's still wrong. Something's not fully what was intended. God's still at an arm's length. They're still doing religious sacrifices to make themselves right to appear before him. Their kings, their rulers aren't perfect. And actually at best we've got Solomon who kind of rules for 40 years in a right and wise and peaceful way. But then his rule ends poorly. And the nation begins to spiral downward from there. And that's where 2 Kings, the end of it, leaves us. There's still something yet to come. The kingdom only came in a partial way. So we've jumped around through these scenes, and that might be just kind of fun historical trivia and context for us, but what do we, what do we need this for? Why, why spend time on this? And I want to suggest there's five things we can take with us today from this story that we see in the heart of God for us to follow him today. Number one is this. God wants to make people his treasure, that is a radical idea, in my opinion. Like, have you, have you met people? Have you, you should come out sometime on a Thursday night and see what kind of people we, we, we get out who are, you know, we're trying to corral, you know, middle schoolers and, like, like, hordes, right? Like, like have, you, have you seen how that all works? Like, what if they were to rule and, and run the youth night? Like, crazy stuff, right? Have you seen the inside of your own heart? Like, I, I know personally... Like wow! Like there, there, are certain things that God still needs to work in me. God wants to make people His treasure. Why people? Like surely there could, surely there could be better candidates for this whole rescue treasure type thing, right? Like, like, like dogs, for example. Like, uh, like maybe you know a nice German Shepherd. Or a nice Belgian shepherd. You know, they look nice. You can, you can post photos of them on Instagram and it looks good. You can, you know, they're, they're loyal, they're fierce, they're, you know, they're just really cool. Like dogs, that could work. I actually had a high schooler tell me this week that if they re- enter into a situation where, you know, there's a road, one side has a ditch where there's a person with a broken leg, other side of the ditch has a dog with a broken leg, they're helping the dog. And I'm like, well, if that's a high schooler, like, man, God knows us so well and yet still treasure like there are billions of stars that he spoke out in billions of galaxies surely surely even that would be a better treasure than people but no it's not not according to god we saw you know the incredible value he places on us From creation, and then we get to Exodus 19 in one of those scenes where where he speaks to the people and says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a what? A kingdom of priests, people who are gonna represent me to the world. And a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. Now, this is back in the partial part of the kingdom. And once Jesus comes and we, we hear about how he sets this up in a, in a fully good and right way, uh, First Peter picks up on the same language. So, this, is, this should be true of us if we put our faith in Jesus as well. In First Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Being a possession of God, being his treasure, it's not just about just privilege, it's about purpose as well. And we see that in the idea that, hey, you've got, there's, there's an excellent God that you need to proclaim to a dark and broken world. Verse 10, once you were a people, but now you are God's people. You ever run into somebody, maybe in your friend group, who uh, is really struggling, they've had a hard week, and they go, man, I just don't, I feel worthless. You know, boss doesn't like me, I'm getting bullied at school, siblings not getting along. You know, our our default might be like, no, you're you're a good person, like, look at how good you did at that job, or, you know, your grades are really good, I'm sure the teacher misjudged you, or, or whatever. What we should stop doing is look at all the performance stuff that we're, you know, you do well at this, and go back to the identity stuff and go, okay, For those of us in Jesus, look what he said. You are his treasure. That should be how we coach our friends. That should be how we as people help encourage one another when it comes to the struggle of identity in this world. Is Okay, what does God say about you? What's true of you first? Identity. God wants to make people his treasure. The second thing we see is that we as people... Can't rule or save ourselves. I mean, all of this history, you know, it's no wonder we've got such a large chunk of text from all the history of the people. And their inability to keep the law, to rule themselves properly, to bring themselves out of Egypt. Like, we just can't do it. We're not good at it. They start making idols um, and they start doing all this false worship, like the nations around them, and a lot of it was all about instant gratification. We read about the gods, you know, Baal, or Baal, and it's like, okay, well, a lot of that was bound up with, a, you, could, you could do worship, but part of that was, was about sexuality, and so it was instant gratification, and somehow that's always the big false worship thing is sexuality, it seems, all the way back then, too, and it's like, okay, we, we, we need help. We need help. We need a rescuer and a ruler who can do this properly and perfectly. Unfortunately, we get that in Jesus. A third thing we see is that when God speaks, we really should listen. And I, I love that about all this history that we've kind of summarized and skipped through this morning is that you know the people at every turn, like, you know, it seems like they forgot what God said previously. Like even after the promise to Abraham, just a couple chapters later, it's like, by the way, uh, you know, these people, your ancestors that are going to come from you, your descendants rather, uh, they're going to go into slavery for 400 years. You can expect that, but I'm going to do this and this and this. Or another place in Deuteronomy 17, we're told, okay, if once you guys want a king and get a king, you know, make sure that king doesn't take foreign wives. Why? Uh, Because if that happens, those people are going to turn his heart away from me and they're going to reject God's rule and that's going to lead to bad rulership for your kingdom. So what does Solomon do? He takes foreign wives. (laughs) His heart's turned from God. Like all this, like when God speaks, it's like we 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 sometimes just go like that's an option for us. Like oh okay maybe maybe I'll I'll take that under advisement as one of the many types of things I'm bringing in to help me inform my belief or my decision. In Judges 21, it said uh, this is before the whole kings and stuff. It says that in those days there was no king, so everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. And that was a bad thing. (laughs) Like that was a very bad thing. And that's sort of like what gets celebrated today, isn't it? Like, do what's right in your own eyes. Like, just go and just do whatever feels right. Go for that. Believe in that. Like, just go for it. Like, you can rule yourself. You can, you can decide what's what's right for you. But if anything, human history has taught us that's not true. And it's certainly not true when we reject God's will because we miss God's blessing. There was a we still do this as a church, where you can, if you've got some sort of need for prayer, you can come for uh, meet with some of our elders in between services or before services. You, you know, you contact the church office, you set up this appointment, and uh, a lot of that is built on the idea from James chapter five, where where God instructs the church through James, "Hey, if anybody among you is sick or needs prayer, you know, let them come before the elders, you know, the leadership of the church, and let them get prayed for." So, a couple of years back, when I first started here, I was I was going to these regularly, and we had somebody show up in a wheelchair to get prayed for because their legs didn't work. And so we're, we're praying for them and, and, and you know the, the time passes. I felt like, man, there were some encouraging words spoken over them. That's great. Uh, I had something else to go do. So I, I decided to start leaving the room. Uh, the person in the wheelchair is, is kind of ushered out by one of the people who was praying for them. And to my surprise, the elder was like, hey, uh, why don't you just why don't you give your legs a try? Like, do you want to try walking? And I was like, what, why would you ask that? Like, that's really strange. But they, they obviously didn't hear my internal dialogue. It's like, okay, we're going to go for it. Person in the chair, we just prayed for them like, like two minutes ago, props themselves up and starts to walk down the hallway. Like, like this hallway, like right behind this wall, this happened. I'm like, what? As, and it was like as if God met me and was like, well, what did you ask for? What did you think? I spoke it in my word that, hey, if you have people in your congregation who are sick, you know, let them come before the leaders, let them get prayed for. When God speaks, we should listen. Not come up with our own ideas of, oh, this is how I should make, you know, my family work or, or my marriage work or my sex life work or, or my, my prayer life work or all of this. There's plenty he has given us help within that. And if this, anything this part of the story tells us, this, this is a very true thing that we need to take to heart. When God speaks, we need to not just hear what he says, we need to actually listen to what he says. A fourth thing, and I, I love this so much, is, is that we need to understand the Old Testament to fully appreciate the New. So much of our understanding of God ought to come from here. You know, Christopher Wright wrote a book called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. And he said, It saddens me that so many Christians these days love Jesus, but know so little about who he thought he was and what he had come to do. Jesus becomes a kind of photo montage composed of a random mixture of gospel stories topped up with whatever fashionable image of him is current, including, recently, the New Age caricatures of him. He's cut off from the historical context of his own day from his deep roots in the Hebrew Scriptures. To fully understand, if we're saying we're following Jesus, this New Testament Jesus, so much of who he is and why he came and what he's all about is found in these deep roots. Like when we get to more confusing parts of the New Testament where we read, you know, in like, say, the book of Revelation where, where the writer John's told, hey, look, there's there's the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and he sees there's this, there's this lamb that looks like it was slain. Like, what's going on there? And you're like, that's why, I don't go to that book, Jesse. Well, okay, what all was written beforehand? Like in Genesis 49, where God's talking to the tribe of Judah, saying, hey, you're like a lion's cub. Rulership is not going to depart from your tribe. And then Exodus, we get this whole Passover lamb being slain as as a substitute sacrifice so that people don't experience judgment. So then imagery comes along in Revelation, and it's like, I don't know what that is. This book is irrelevant. It's confusing. But we have all the context. Let's not neglect this big part of of our story. Let's not do that. Fifth and and finally, God, and this is so clear at every turn in all these scenes, God is good enough and strong enough to keep his promises. Like all throughout, at at every point, you know, I, I, I feel just from a human perspective, God would have been fully justified to just go, I'm I'm rolling this whole promise thing up. The rescue plan, it's not worth it. This thing's not going to endure. The mission's going to end. Like, Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands. Isaac and Jacob, like, there's stuff going on there. You know, the 12, you know, heads of the tribes of Israel, one of them, like, almost gets killed by their brothers. That's how bad it gets. Moses murders a couple of guys, puts them in the sand, flees the country. God shows up to him in a burning bush that it's not consumed. It's like, I can't do it. People reject God's rule, they use some of the plunder from Egypt to make, you know, idols to worship instead of the God who gave them the loot in the first place. The judges and the kings, they fail to properly rule, they bring in, you know, stuff from the surrounding cultures and say that that's God and and they forget all what's going on. At every part in the story, God could have been fully justified to stand back and go, you know what? Maybe the German shepherds were a good idea maybe we should have just gone with maybe i should just go with that that other far off galaxy rather than that one planet in that one specific galaxy on that one specific area in the universe with those specific people maybe there was something better but no he's good enough and strong enough to keep his promises of rescue and that for me is so encouraging because where god is where god shows up is when people are faithless and powerless he shows up with faithfulness and power to rescue and to rule. And that's so, so important. And I appreciate that so much. It shapes you know, how, we, how we worship here. It shapes how we talk about him. Or it ought to anyways. Because we know. We couldn't have done this thing on our own. In a, one of my favorite Bible packages right now, the Jesus Bible, a guy named Louis Giglio writes an essay on this part of the story. And he says this, where people proved to be faithless, God was faithful, never once denying his own character. So while it might be tempting to skim over the Old Testament account and get to the good news of the New Testament, we find in the Old Testament a helpful mirror for ourselves. Well, the Old Testament serves as a reminder that our effort will never be enough to make us acceptable to God. It still invites us to draw near to God. The invitation is there. And it's there for us as well today when the kingdom is, you know, fully come through the, the rule and reign of Jesus and it's going to be perfected one day. The invitation is there. Your effort's not going to be enough. Like remember the scene we, we, we covered where the law is given? You know the scene that none of us really wanted to listen to me talk about but you, you tolerated? The scene where rules are given? Did you notice the order of the scenes? God didn't show up to Moses and go, hey, Moses, I brought you these tablets of stone. There's 10 commandments carved into them. By the way, here's you know all these books of religious system and rule and, and clothing to wear and all these different clean, unclean stuff, do's and don'ts. Could you take this to the people who are enslaved and could you tell them that, hey, here's all the rules. Um, once you guys do this well enough, then the plagues and the Red Sea and, and all the rescue is going to happen. You notice that didn't happen? With God, it's always rescue first. And so if you're sitting here today going, man, I got to wait until, you know, my life is all together, till my, my relationships are all together, till my internet usage is all together, my money's together, I got to wait till all that's figured out before God's going to rescue me. Well, where are you getting that from? That's not the pattern in this part of the story, and it's not the pattern with Jesus. The Old Testament serves as a reminder that our effort will never be enough to make us acceptable to God, but it still invites us to draw near. How do we need to draw near to Jesus, to this God who's committed to the mission today? As a, not just individuals, but as a whole group. As a whole group, what are we going to do? God's responsibility all throughout was to keep his promise. Our responsibility is to enter that promise, to own this, as a people and see God be glorified and our city changed as a result. Let me pray for us to that end. God, it's still so bizarre to me. You see people like me, you see people like the rest of us in this room and go, I want to have them as my treasure and I will do anything. My mission will endure Thousands of years of failure on people's part because it does not depend on us. Thank you for being faithful, good enough, strong enough to rescue and to rule us and have us experience that blessing. And God, as as your word says in Isaiah 25, Lord, you are our God. We will exalt you. We will praise your name for you've done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. May it change us. May you change us as we draw near to you. Amen.